Well, welcome to our Christmas series. Every year it's our custom in the month of December to do usually a three week, and that's what works out in, in uh, this December, is to do a three week series. And it's, we usually have some kind of an Advent theme. And what I mean by Advent is simply a looking toward Christmas, a looking toward the incarnation of Christ. And so this, this year, I'd like to talk about three of the aspects of Advent. Those of you that grew up celebrating Advent and the church calendar know that it is four Sundays before Christmas. So it started last Sunday, and it's typically characterized by focusing on hope, love, joy, and peace. Each weekend has, each Sunday has a kind of a theme of that. Some churches preach on those subjects, etc. But we have three weeks, and so we're going to talk about love, joy, and peace. And we're going to talk about them from a biblical point of view. Because if you think about us as Christians, these are big words in our world, and it's something everybody pursues. But as Christians, it's something that not only are we pursuing, it's something that the Spirit is gifting us with. And so the question then becomes, what is it we are pursuing? What is it? What does biblical love look like? What is biblical joy and what is biblical peace? Because I think you'll find that there's a big disparity between the way our world and historically the way people have thought about these subjects and the way the Bible talks about it. So that's what we're going to do. And in this lesson, we're gonna focus on love. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right into our lesson. Lord, thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your grace that you poured out on us. Grace, Father, for the good times and grace for the difficult times. I thank you that you are Emmanuel, you are with us. I pray that you will be with our government, our Supreme Court, our Congress. I pray that you will be with the leaders of the nations. And Lord, I know that they do not all seek to do good, but I pray that your spirit would turn their hearts toward you. And Lord, we know that you are sovereign and that your will shall be done. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence in Christ's name, amen. Well, as always, here's the number you can text questions during class to. If you have questions about this or things we wanna explore, feel free to text your questions to that number. And as I said, we're going to do a mini advent and we're gonna talk about these three basic ideas. So when we talk about love, the first question is, what is love? And I realize that sounds like a big question, but there've been so many songs written there's so many different ideas. There have been so many definitions in the past. But fundamentally, in 21st century American culture, love is considered to be, and I believe rightfully so, a very powerful force. It is something that is innately wired into human beings, all human beings. This is what our culture believes, and this, this is right. All human beings have the capacity to love. From a cultural point of view though, love is generally considered with our evolutionary background, a little bit of scientific determinism thrown into that, and a little biochemistry. You get the idea that love is predominantly part of the emotional system or the biochemical system of human beings and that love is an emotion. And when you, if you just watch television, listen to the culture, watch ads, anytime it talks about love or tenderness or compassion, you're going to see very emotive images. What is that telling you? It's telling you that the, 
the implied assumption is that love is an emotion and love can be evoked or tender feelings can be evoked by emotive images. Well, that's not what everybody thinks that love is, but that's what our culture thinks is love is. And here is a great illustration of that. Okay, so here's a great little quote for you. True love is knowing a person's faults and loving them even more for them. You should say, aw, doesn't that feel good? I call this first year of marriage love, okay? This is like the, I know you have flaws, but honey, it just makes me love you more for those flaws. But, I love being married, it's so great to find the one special person you want to annoy for the rest of your life. I call this second year and beyond marriage, okay? This is when you realize that maybe those little flaws aren't so endearing as they used to be. And this is obviously tongue in cheek, but my point is, is if you think about the cultural ideas of, around marriage, one of the things that you'll see is it's bound up with this mystical, emotional, passionate idea of love. Now, I'm not telling you that love is not emotional. I simply want to tell you that it's not just emotional. And the problem with thinking that love is, is emotions and binding it up in that is, it's really hard to sustain an emotional high over time. And a lot of times when people in marriages, and I'll just stick with marriages for the time being, this isn't just about marriages, but with marriages, one of the reasons you find that uh, marriages get, have difficulty and it's like, I don't love you anymore, or the love is just gone, or we just don't have the passion we used to have, all you're really saying is you're not making a relational statement at that point. All you're really talking about is our biochemistry has not sustained the same emotional reaction that we had when we first met each other. And you're probably all saying, well, duh, you should have thought about that early on. I mean, that's the nature of human emotions. We don't grieve forever, thank the Lord. We aren't on a high forever. We don't get sad forever. In other words, we are resilient creatures. And that means that you're not gonna maintain an emotional state forever. And so the idea of thinking about love as just an emotional response is, I think, leads to a lot of the difficulties that we see. You see a lot of disillusionment. And so if indeed love is an emotion and it's situated in you, then it makes a lot of sense that when your needs aren't being met, when you aren't feeling good about a situation or a person or whatever it may be, then there's a problem that's situated somewhere else because you've lost that feeling. And I think that's not a biblical way of looking at love. So what I wanna do is I wanna to go to the scriptures and I wanna talk about some of the elements of the way the Bible thinks about love. And what you're gonna see is the Bible, passion is very much a part of the Bible. The idea of, of loving someone in an emotional, passionate way is a part of the Bible, but it is, that's not all biblical love is about. So let me tell you the story and I wanna go back to kind of the beginning and I wanna tell you a quick version of the biblical story because love is the thread 
that runs through all of the biblical story. This painting was uh, from Michelangelo. It's on the Sistine Chapel. He finished this painting in 1512 AD, so 500 years ago. This painting is brilliant. This is God and Adam. And notice how God has fully extended his arm and God is reaching to touch man. He's coming down to humanity. And notice how Adam, fallen humanity, is not exactly sure if he wants to connect with God or not. Notice how his arm is not extended and notice kind of the way his hand is done. He's not really sure how he wants to respond. And so if you look at this, I think Michelangelo captured the human condition so well. John Wesley, by the way, later, a couple hundred years after this, would theologically capture this. And it would say simply this, is that God extends his love and his grace to humanity, and the question is, will humanity respond to God's grace? And when you look at that, you have to see, you see the uncertainty in Adam as the representative of humanity. Will we respond to God's grace? There's an ambivalence in this painting that's just brilliant. That's what makes this such a depiction of the human condition. But think about what you know about the Bible. So God creates the earth, God creates humanity, and he says these things are good. He creates humanity such that we should never die. He gives us meaningful work to do. He communes with humanity in the Garden of Eden. This is Genesis chapter one and chapter two. Human beings rebel against God. They say, I will be God instead of you. That was the serpent basically saying, you surely won't die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. And they believed that and they thought, I want to be God. And so they disrupt the harmony. So what happens? at that point? Does God stop loving them? Well, you don't see that. You see them cast out. The consequences of sin is that death enters the world, that they're expelled from the Garden of Eden, and yet God makes them close. God provides for them. God continues to have a relationship. Even with Cain and Abel, uh, forgetting about you know what happens with Cain and Abel, but the point is Cain and Abel go to God to make offerings. In other words, God stays in relationship with them, even though they're the ones that moved. They're the ones that withdrew. And so you see one of the elements of biblical love is what we tend to call unconditional love, which I really think that's not a helpful word anymore. I know that sounds like heresy, but God's love is unconditional, but not quite in the way we mean that word. What I would say maybe instead is, what you see in the biblical story is God's love is enduring. God's love continues. In other words, because humanity fell, there were consequences, and yet God is there. And so time goes on, humanity continues to rebel. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter six, you have, and God saw that all the works of human beings were only evil all the time. It's got, is humanity left to its own devices, becomes extremely corrupted. And so you see the flood and you see the consequences of that sin. And yet God retains one 
faithful family. God comes to Noah and he says, will you obey me? Will you do what I tell you? Will you believe me even when it doesn't seem reasonable? And telling him to build an ark and it's not raining doesn't seem reasonable. Right, you know what kind of talk he had to have gotten from his neighbors, like, really, did you have a permit for that? You know, I mean, it, if you think about it, Noah was faithful. The scripture says Noah was a righteous man in his generation, apparently one of the only righteous men in his generation. And so he's faithful. And so God continues his care for humanity through the tiny faithful remnant. And so he brings them through and again, they populate the earth. And as time goes by, God begins this plan to bring humanity back relationally to him, to reconcile humanity. Now you have to stop and ask yourself, why? Well, just why? I mean, surely he has better things to do. He could just say, let's just do this over, let's do do-overs. I mean, if God's that powerful, it creates something out of nothing, why? Well, that's an element, an interesting element of love, is that God's love is an enduring love, even when our love is a very fickle love. And so God continues with humanity. And so he finds another faithful individual. And in Genesis chapter 12, you meet Abraham. And God says to him, Abraham, do you trust me enough to do something even though it doesn't seem logical and you can't see the outcome? Basically the same thing he said to Noah. He said, will you go where I tell you and show you and I will do great things with you. And it says, Abraham trusted God and he went. And so God takes that faithful remnant and he begins to work through the descendants of Abraham and he begins to take special care he does loving things for them. He cares for Abraham. He protects Abraham from harm. He gives Abraham a son. He has the Israelites expand against all odds. They go, they become slaves in Egypt and against all odds, they actually grow into a great nation instead of becoming extinct, like, which is what happened to most slaves. And so God shows his care and compassion for them. When they grow up a little bit, you know, my metaphor for this is God is growing humanity back up. And so when they grow up a little bit, by the time you get to the book of Exodus, second book in the Bible, you meet Moses. And he says Moses to them to deliver them out of slavery, but also to begin to form them as a group of people to be a witness to the rest of the world. Why are the Jews God's chosen people? Because they're better. No, because they had more merit. No, the scripture says no to both of those things. They didn't merit his favor, but he called them for Abraham's sake of his faithfulness and said, you will be my chosen people and you will be a light to the world. You will be the way that I will influence this world in my grand plan to bring humanity back. And so Moses gives them the law of Moses and they become a nation, they become a people, they have a land of their own and they begin to live in a way that is oriented toward God. Because if you think about it, ever since the garden, humanity has been oriented away from God. You could argue humanity has been oriented towards self. And you saw, you see in the scriptures what happens with that. 
And so God cares enough. I want you to think about this as for basically 1,400 years, God is raising a two-year-old. And if that's not love, I don't know what love is, okay? And so you basically have humanity at this level and God loves and cares, gives them boundaries, protects them, disciplines them through the whole rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is God, I want you to think about God, is like a parent of a toddler who is patient, who is setting boundaries, who is disciplining them, but all along has their good in mind in the end. That's what the Old Testament is pretty much about from the book of Exodus on. And so God's love, and when I paint this picture, you're not hearing a whole lot of God just was giddy with emotions over humanity. And so I want you to see some dimensions of biblical love that are far more enduring than the emotional highs or lows. And so in time, God brings the plan together. And what no one saw coming is that the plan that God set in motion from the time that humanity was cast out of the garden, that he basically realized at that point, at some point, there's going to have to be a sacrifice and there's gonna to have to be a demonstration of love that is so great that we can be reconciled. And that brings us to Christmas. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So let's pause right there for a minute, and I want you to think about that self-contained story, if you will. It takes us all the way up to the New Testament, and it's a story about God's love for us. And it's a story about biblical love for us. It's not a love that sought what we wanted, it's a love that sought what we desperately needed. It was a love that was very patient with humanity and at the same time was not enabling us. It was setting the boundaries, it was disciplining us, it was shaping humanity through time. And so I'd like to explore the New Testament idea of love a little bit, but hopefully in that story, you get a sense of, okay, that story is actually about God's love. And that's what godly love looks like. That's what biblical love looks like. That story is there not just to make you feel good and rejoice, although it definitely is a cause for elation 
and rejoicing and great joy, you know, joy to the world. I mean, at Christmas, we sing all these songs about joy and rightfully so, because something great has happened. But that story also is a template, if you will. And so here we appear on the scene as loved by God, forgiven by God and reconciled to God. And now as we go about our life, we think, okay, how are we supposed to do this? Well, the easiest way would be, how did he do it? What did God look like? What were his attributes? What does love look like? When we go into the world to share God's love with the world, what are you sharing with the world? I mean, think about this. When you say to somebody, I don't know if you've ever had anybody walk up to you and say, do you know that God loves you? And I'm probably like the worst person to say that to because my answer is, you have no idea how profound that is. We need to talk about this for about an hour. And they're like, no, I just want you to feel good. Oh, no, 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 that is way too shallow. We have got to talk about this for about an hour because the idea of God's love is that story. And that story is the template for what love looks like if we're going to represent God well, we need to represent God's love well. I don't want people to think God loves you. Oh, really? He has a little warm, fuzzy place in his heart for me? Not so much. He did something so profound and so demonstratively above and beyond blow your mind, committed loving for you, that that should really rock you far beyond somebody having some emotional feeling about you. Does that make sense? That's what this story is really good for. Well, let's jump into some of the scriptures because I wanna explore what then is the shape of this love. Is everybody worth loving? Is everything worth loving? Is loving discerning? Is it not discerning? In other words, as we take the love of God into the world and we use that story as a template for it, what does it look like? This is a famous passage. And there's a lot to be learned about love in this. For God so loved the world, which you can translate that into his creation. That means more than human beings, but he certainly loved us, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth, this is a key, key idea in love in the New Testament is that love is not flattery, love is not little white lies, love is based on truth. Truth of arc, and think about that story. God never said, you know, what you did wasn't all that bad, and I think you felt bad for long enough, come on, why don't you just have a warm chocolate chip cookie and let's just hug and get over it, right? I mean, it's based on the truth of something really big happened and something really bad happened. And so this idea of truth is at the bottom of it. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has, not, has been done through God. One interesting thing that jumps out at this is God's love is very enduring over time. But God's love is 
not blind. God's love is not, I don't wanna use the word universal because God does love everyone, but love is not blind. What you see in this passage, here's what a lot of people think unconditional love is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whether you believe in him or not, you will never be condemned. Make sense? That's why I don't like to use the word unconditional. Not because it's not a good word, but because that's what some people think. Well, if he's unconditionally loves me, then my sin shouldn't get in the way. Well, there's this truth issue, you know, that happens here. And so God's love is enduring. God does love everybody, but love is not blind. I mean, it's like the, the painting is like, God has done everything he, he can do to touch us. The question is, as Wesley said, will we respond to God? So love is not blind, love is discerning. And that's an important thing to think about love in a very practical sense. Because sometimes you're gonna see people come to you and say, if you loved me, you would do, uh, fill in the blank with whatever you want, right? You would affirm me, approve me, give me what I want. Uh, you know, you would accept this, you would accept that, you would do whatever. You know, fill in the blank with whatever it is you want. That idea of love is not a biblical idea of love. Because I could say to God, well, if you really love me, you just you'd forgive me no matter what whether I sinned or not, whether I repented or not. I mean, you'd, if you really love me, you'd, for, you'd, you'd do whatever I want you to do. But that's not biblical love. That's not what this passage says, is it? This passage is very loving, and yet this passage is very discerning. And so the key idea there is that love is discerning, and that's true in our relationships as well. Glossing over things in relationships Glossing over things in families and pretending that it doesn't exist is not a loving thing to do. It may be an emotionally avoidant thing to do. It may be a conflict avoidant thing to do. It may bring you short-term peace. And I'm not condemning it. I'm not telling you, you need to go out and confront a bunch of people tonight. Do not, if you do it, don't tell them I told you to do it. All right, but base, my point is simply, don't, I don't want you to think that that's what biblical love is. Biblical love acknowledges, discerns the truth in a situation because only by acknowledging the truth can reconciliation take place. Now again, I'm not saying that means you didn't go wag your finger at all your relatives that have, have transgressed. All I'm saying is, is that don't, don't think you're, we're being loving by easing people's feelings. Now, is there a time, is there a place? Of course there is, but my point is this, is that love is discerning. Here's another interesting aspect of God's love. You see, Paul says, at just the right time. What does he mean by just the right time? If you think about this plan, by the way, I didn't tell you everything God had to do to make this happen. I mean, he nurtured humanity and he found a couple people of faith, a couple of faithful families and he used them and he brought things along. But have you ever wondered why was Jesus born when Jesus was born? Why didn't he wait till the internet was was invented. It would have been so much easier. He wouldn't have had to do all that traveling. He could just tweet like crazy, you know, and save the world through tweets, all right? Twitter, our savior. But, but, okay, that was cynical. But basically what I'm saying to you is that that time was the right time. If you think about what God had done with humanity, he'd had 14 years of the Jews being a beacon and what he did with the Jews was a lesson to the rest of the world. All those Old Testament stories of God rescuing his people were there for you and me, but they were there for the people of the time to teach them 
about God. It isn't just about the Jews. It's about God. He also brought through the geopolitics of the time and the history of the time, you find that Rome comes out on top. There's no Rome if, there aren't the, if there's not an Alexander the Great. There's no Rome if there's not a Persians before them. That these things evolve, if you will, historically to Rome. You have a universal language, you have a universal government, you have paved roads, right? I mean, you, you, the world comes together in a time when had Jesus been born 500 years before, Jesus born 500 years later, you would not have had all of those things. God is orchestrating all of history, is bending to this moment, not just humanity. And so at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now that ought to hit you right between the eyes. Because if you think about this, when Christ died to bear your sins, you were not a cute little puppy that God had a warm, fuzzy feeling for. You were ungodly. That is an interesting thing to say. He's saying that about you and me. He's telling us the truth. We were not faithful people who just showed up and said, thank you God for coming to save me because I've been good, but man, the rest of these people have been terrible. I'm so glad you're here to help them. That's not the way it was, was it? We too were ungodly. We were enemies of God. We were rebels. He said Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, maybe a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This takes the emotional component completely out of this. And I don't mean love is not an emotion, but you can't make an argument here about love is, is simply an emotional state. Love is a commitment God had made more than 2,000 years before this and a decision God had made to redeem humanity and God carried it out over time. Back to the marriage analogy. Marriage is based on the idea of emotion alone, and there's nothing wrong with passion in marriage. We'll find it very hard to stand the test of time. That's why when you get married, by the way, you don't, you don't get a, think about marriage this way. If love is primarily you know, emotional, what you should say, you shouldn't be doing the vows the way we do it. In fact, I'm gonna do marriages this way from now on. I'm gonna say, look, does she meet your needs? Yes. Does he meet your needs? Yes. Do you guys just really fired up about each other, really passionate, can't live without her? Think about him every moment. You're good to go. You're married, right? That's not what you do though, why? Because religious ceremonies have all this stuff about commitment. What does that have to do? I mean, you're spoiling the emotional moment here. Because biblical love has this strong element of the enduring commitment that will carry you through those one or two dry spells where your spouse's habits annoy you, okay? My point is this, is you get this idea of commitment. That's what Paul is talking about. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you should just pause there every now and then when you're reading your Bible and go, why? Why would he do that? What does that tell me about us 
And what does that tell me about God? What it tells me about God is his idea of love, because he thinks he's demonstrating his love in this way, is his commitment. Maybe some of you had, uh, at least from my era, had parents the way my parents were. When I grew up, uh, my parents were 50s era. And when I say 50s era, I just mean there were just ways things were done in families. And so in our family, you know, for dads, this is the way dads were brought up. It was like, hey, if you're hurt, walk it off. Rub some dirt on it, you'll be okay. And if you were crying, it was like, quit crying, get over it, man up, you know, do this kind of thing. There wasn't a whole lot of, son, I love you so much, come here, let me give you a warm hug. Okay, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that was the cultural milieu of the time. But parents have always loved their children. And my parents loved me. And my dad, instead of having this warm, fuzzy hug, well, you know what my dad used to do? My dad used to, uh, when I moved away and I had a job and I made more money than my dad did, I never went home to see my dad. He didn't give me money before I left. What is that? And your dad demonstrates his love for you in this. He always slips you a $20 bill when you leave, whether you need it or not. In other words, there are a lot of ways to demonstrate love. It's what I, I guess what I'm trying to say with that story. God demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, he went through with the plan to do what we needed, not what was warm and fuzzy to him. And in your and my marriage, and uh, in friendships, relationships, this isn't just true. Enduring loyal friends, it's about commitment. And it's about showing love in more than the ups and downs of the emotional, are we getting along? It's the I'm committed to you. Other words for loyalty or for, for love are words like loyalty and allegiance and commitment. And I know they're not exactly love, but those ideas are really bound up in the idea of biblical love. Question. Yes. Would you say that God's love is different from acceptance into his kingdom? Um, his love is never ending and unconditional, but acceptance into the kingdom is conditional. That's a good question. God's love is, and I'm just going to use the word enduring, but I'm not trying to, to quibble here. I just don't want to bring in unspoken ideas into this conversation. I just don't want the baggage of the word sometimes. God's love is enduring in the sense that God does not stop loving you, but God's love is discerning. I mean, if you stop and think about that for a moment, disobedience to God has consequences. The consequence is not that God doesn't love you, meaning God doesn't want the best for you, hasn't worked hard for the best for you, hasn't made a way for the best thing for you, in other words, reconciliation, salvation, call it whatever you want to, to happen, that is love and that never stops. Rebelling against God has consequences to it. And that's what I, what I mean is God's love is enduring, but God's love is discerning. It is a holy love. And what I mean by holy is simply that God's love has expectation. And that is God says, I love you and I put all this effort so that we can be together. And it's like us saying, but I don't wanna be with you and turn your back and walk away. So God loves you, but you don't have a relationship. You are not, quote, saved to put some Christianese around it. 
So hopefully that's what we're talking about, yes. Those who believe will be saved by grace through faith, you're saved. You enter the kingdom of God, you go to heaven, whatever euphemisms we wanna use about this, and they're slightly inaccurate, but that, that's fair enough. And God still loves you. And the point is, but you've turned, we've turned our back on that love. And so God doesn't, God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And so yes, God continues to love us. But I prefer the word enduring rather than unconditional because the, it's not that God's love is conditioned on something, us being good people or anything like that. But a lot of people then just merge those two ideas together and say, well then if he loves me, I'm going to heaven. No, that's, that's not what the Bible says. So that, that's probably accurate. I'm probably tiptoeing too much around the baggage that we bring to some of these words. But there are some ideas here that are really important. So good question. So the idea of love is not dependent on the worthiness of the recipient. We talked about love is discerning. And now love is not dependent though on whether the recipient is worthy or not. In other words, when God loved us, showed his love for us by Christ dying on the cross, we were not worthy recipients in the sense that we were ungodly, we were rebels. But love doesn't pay attention to the worthiness of the recipient. Not, I know I'm back on marriage again, but I just gotta talk to you about marriage because marriages are in crisis in our country, in our world. But that's another key element of biblical love in a biblical marriage, is this idea of love has more than an emotional component, more than, and it has the commitment, it has the loyalty, it has the long-term good, but it also isn't conditioned on your worthiness. Have you ever been in a relationship, and this isn't just a marriage, it's a relationship, and it's kind of a ledger relationship where you're keeping a ledger, and it's like, you know, actually, I've done way more good deeds for you than you have done for me. And so I'm gonna have to cut you off uh, until you make up the deficit. You have a debt that needs to be paid, and so you've been over to my house twice for dinner. I've been over to your house none. So you won't be getting an invite until I come back. Well, marriages can be that way. Friendships can be that way, can't they? We're sort of keeping score. And, the, and what that really is saying is, are you worthy of my love? Have, you know, is, is the ledger balanced? That's not a biblical idea because you couldn't see a ledger that was more out of balance than this, than God's love for us and our complete bankruptcy before God. Okay, how great is the love? This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. This makes me emotional. How great, do you catch that? Love is an emotional, yes. You get the emotion, you get the response. How great is the love the Father has lavished. This is a great Greek word. He has lavished this love on us. What? That we could be children of God. We don't have an employer-employee relationship. This is not God saying your sins are forgiven, now get out there and act right for a change. This is, not only are you reconciled, this is the prodigal son. This is come into the household and be a child of God. That kind of love should blow you away because we should be saying, I do not deserve this. What did the prodigal son say when he came back? I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. 
I'll be happy living in the servants' quarters and getting three meals a day. That's fair enough. But God's love, not only does it not depend on the worthiness of the recipient, God's love is lavish. God has plans for us that are even bigger than our hopes and expectations. And if you think about that, I'm gonna go back to marriage again, that's something that if it's not part of your relationship, I wanna urge you to, to think about this element of biblical love. I want you to look at your spouse, I want you to look at your friends, and I want you to see the potential of what God can do with them. Does that make sense? If possible, you should be the one that has a vision for them as to how magnificent a creation they are. Sometimes in marriages you get the idea is you're not supportive, you're not encouraging, etc. And, and those things happen. And, but really, if you think about the biblical idea, if I wanna love the way God loves, that means when I look at you, I don't just see your flaws. Uh, I don't see you know, your good traits, your bad traits, and I just make a little ledger out of that. And, but I do have a long-term commitment, but even more than having that commitment, what I have for you is I have a vision of who you can be, will be in God. I am your biggest cheerleader. I cannot wait to see what God does with you. I mean, think about that aspect of love because that's what this is talking about. God said, oh, you think all you need is to not die. I mean, you think all you need is to get your sins taken care of because you feel the weight of that burden. You go, oh, you have no idea what I'm gonna do for you. We're going to reconcile you, but you're gonna be part of the family and you're going to have more than you ever dreamed. This is Ephesians 3.20, where it says God is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. And so I want you to think about God's love. I know I've spent the first half of this kind of talking you down off the emotional ledge and getting to a, what sounds more practical. Love is discerning. Love uh, you know, does not consider the worthiness of the recipient. And that sounds a little cut and dried. But when you get to this point, you ought to realize this is way better, way better than God just having a warm, fuzzy feeling inside for me. This is something that isn't going to be swayed by whether or not I've been worthy today. Does that make sense? This is way bigger, way better. This is love you can count on. Have you ever had a friend who was maybe going through a hard time or something, I'm not dissing your friend, but if you ever had a friend that it's like, who knows who's gonna show up today? It's gonna be Tigger or it's gonna be Eeyore, but I have no idea who's gonna show up today. And so it's like, where do we stand with each other? Maybe you've had friends that's like, oh, today I'm your best friend, tomorrow, what am I, chopped liver? You know, you, you get this kind of a fickle nature of relationship. This kind of love isn't fickle at all. Because this kind of love, you're saved by grace through trusting God. You aren't measuring up to his love. It's like, well, I hope I acted good enough today that he'll still love me tomorrow. That's not even in this equation. Oh my goodness, that's the kind of love everybody dreams of. In fact, this is a great quote from Tim Keller. And I recommend this book, by the way meaning of marriage, but this is just true in general. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. 
In other words, I want to be loved, but I don't want you to know too much about me because I'm afraid that I would lose your love. This is adulation. This is celebrity status. This is social media stardom is this. I want your love, but I really don't want you to know me because I'm afraid. It's comforting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. In other words, when you really know me and then you say, you're worthless, that's our greatest fear, is someone who actually knows us and then we are not loved. But to be fully known and truly loved is like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, it humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. So if you think about what we've talked about biblical love up to this point, and when we say God loves you, this is what we're talking about. It's that idea of God's love for us is not based on our worthiness. God's love for us is lavished on us far more than we ever could have deserved, asked, or even dreamt of. And you don't need to be afraid that when God finds out all your bad traits, he won't love you anymore because he already knows. Now I really want you to stop for a second and let that sink in. That is a life transforming idea. If you know, understand that and you actually believe that, when Christ said for freedom, Christ came to set you free. This is what he's talking about. This is the idea of freedom. No matter how imperfect human love is, no matter how many people might burn you on social media, no matter how many friends might stick a knife in your back, God is the only one that knows every dirty little secret, every good thing, but every bad thing. Not only that you are, but that you've ever done. And God is still 100% committed to you and has lavished his love on you. And in any situation, now I'm gonna quote Romans 8, 28, in every circumstance, God works together for good for those who love him. In other words, you can count on the fact that whatever God does for you is for your good. And he already knows every bad detail about you. That is so freeing. It is unbelievably good news that God knows who you are. God will always work for your good. The only question you and I have to answer is, will I respond to God's grace and say, here's my life. I wanna be in your family. This is what I want. That, this idea is incredibly powerful. Not everything is deserving of your love. As you and I turn around and say, okay, that's how I am going to love. When Jesus said, love your enemies, I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I, I just felt like I was a terrible Christian because I still kind of hated my enemies. I mean, I just couldn't work up any good feelings about it. And you know, that's true, that's normal, that's called being human, no one can. 
If anybody tells you they have warm, fuzzy feelings about their enemy, there's something psychologically wrong with that person. That's just not normal. But that's not necessarily bad. That's the way you're wired. And if you, but if you think that's what love is, you're gonna have a really hard time with a whole bunch of the New Testament. But if you think that's what, this is what love is, what is God saying when he says love your enemies? He's saying, okay, I want you to remember that you don't have a ledger with anybody. I filled your love tank completely. I know everything bad about you and I absolutely love you. Everything that happens to you will be for your good. I am your God, you are my child. Now, you don't need anything from them. You don't need revenge on your enemies. You don't need status. You don't need to prove you're better than somebody else. You don't need any of this. So you are now completely free to go work for the good of those people. What do they really need? Sometimes it's a swift kick in the butt. Then go give them a swift kick in the butt. Most of the time though, honestly, what is it? It's encouragement. It's finding out that not everybody has it out for them. It's like finding out that somebody's on your side. It's like somebody believes in you. Somebody sees something for you. You see all these, these kinds of things, they're powerful. You know they're powerful. They've happened to you and you thought, oh my goodness, this is a breath of fresh air in a dark place. You are now free to love like that. When Jesus says love your enemies, what he means is you're absolutely free now to not take vengeance. You're completely okay with, you know, I will do what is best for you. I'm not gonna enable you. I'm not gonna help you hurt more people. I'm not gonna let you hurt my family anymore. But I tell you what, I'm not gonna do you a bad turn. I'm gonna do a good turn for you if I can. I'm gonna help you become better. One way would be to tell you that you don't need to live like this, that God loves you more than you understand. And there are a lot of ways to deal with that, but without understanding love like this, you won't see it. But there are things that don't deserve our love. And in fact, some people think sin is loving things that don't deserve to be loved. Misdirected love. And that's not a bad way to think about sin. In other words, giving that kind of commitment, that kind of loyalty to things that are not worthy of that kind of loyalty, that's a mistake. What does God say? He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what you have and what you do, that doesn't come from the Father, that comes from the world. And the world and those desires are gonna pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. In other words, save your loyalty for the things that are worthy of your loyalty. This is all about idolatry, and that is, don't give your loyalty, your commitment, your love, to anything but God, anything else that we put in that place. You know, Jesus said, uh, for where your treasure is, there is your heart. You know, what is, he, what is he basically saying? He said, the things that you're committed to, that you value and so forth, those are your gods. You can say, I serve God, but if that's where your commitment and your loyalty and your love is, that's your God. And he says, that's where your heart is. When he says that's where your heart is, that's your love. That's what you actually love, no matter what you say. And some things are not worthy of our love. People are worthy of love. Noble ideas, truth, and beauty, and love, and joy, and peace, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, those are worthy of our commitment. But there are things that are not worthy of our commitment. And those are the things of the world that want to pull us back down into that downward spiral of humanity. 
This is what Romans chapter one is about. Romans chapter one said, even though people knew God, they reject, I'm paraphrasing, they rejected God and instead gave their love to created things instead. So God gave them over to their desires and the futility of their mind. And in Romans chapter one, you just see this downward spiral till you get to the end and it says, and they became haters and murderers and idolaters and slanderers, etc." In other words, when we take our love and misplace it, that takes us down into the dark places of human history. And you can see that happening in human history. And finally this, for in Christ Jesus, how do we live this out? In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. That's odd, but let me tell you what that means. Circumcision and uncircumcision was the distinction between people who were gonna follow all the rules of God and people that were not following the rules of God. And so what he's saying here is not that obeying God matters, it certainly matters. I mean, the last verse just talked about that. The man who obeys God will live forever. The point here is that it's not about keeping the rules. In other words, whether you keep the rules or you don't keep the rules, I mean, certainly better to keep the rules than not to keep the rules, but don't kid yourself. That's not how you obtain God's love. It's not based on your performance. What matters is faith, trusting God, expressing itself through love. This is a key idea because it, it talks about now, we've talked all about the vertical relationship. We've talked about what God's love looks like to us. What Jesus came to say, and particularly the Sermon on the Mount, is what love looks like in a horizontal relationship. Given, given that as Keller says, God knows you fully and loves you completely, and you are free from any of the burdens of people pleasing, of trying to find affirmation, of trying to be, you know, adulation, or any of those kinds of things, you are free from that. God will fill your love tank completely. So then, the Sermon on the Mount is about what does it look like then to go live out in the world in this way? And that's what he's saying, is that your faith will express itself through this kind of love. So what does that mean for us? Let me give you a couple of ideas in this Advent season. It's really hard to love during the Christmas season. I think it, it, this is the irony. We celebrate the love of God in the Christmas season and it is almost impossible to love your fellow man in the Christmas season. You act like that's just me, be honest, that's you too, right? When you go to the mall and you realize there are no parking places, or as happened to me the other day, pet peeve. There is a lot of people in the parking lot, we've got a big line, everybody's trying to find a parking place, and one guy, and it's a guy, he decides, I'm gonna take the spot. I'm like, fine, you were there first, you take the spot, I'm gonna get on. He's like, but I'm not just gonna take the spot, I'm gonna back into the spot. <laughs> and not only am I gonna back into the spot, but I've never backed a car up before, apparently. <laughs> you know, and so it takes a, so you get my point. Or you get online, and I'll tell you what's gonna to happen to you this year. You're gonna get online and you're gonna go, due to COVID and government policy, we have supply chain problems and you cannot receive 
you know, your Chia pet in time for Christmas. You know, whatever it may be, it's just not, not gonna happen. But during this time, here's what love I think looks like, particularly in this time, is the people around you need to experience the love of God, not by you having a warm, fuzzy feeling toward them. I mean, it's nice to wish people Merry Christmas. It's always nice to smile at people. That is a great thing to do. It brightens everybody's day a little bit. But showing the love of God would be appreciating how busy those people in the stores are and just being encouraging and maybe having a little more patient attitude. In other words, what does it look like to work for the good of the people around you? And some of that is some simple things like encouragement. Sometimes it's presence. People get lonely during the holidays. There are people that God is gonna put in your path and he wants you to love them. And you may say, that's gonna be hard, God, because I don't like them. And he says, what does that have to do with love? He said, I didn't like you when you were ungodly. There was nothing likable about you, but I was 100% committed to do what you needed done. You go, fair enough. And that's what I want you to do. When you come across people likable, not likable, and it's easy to be nice to the likable people. Remember what Jesus said about that? You know, if you love those who love you, don't the pagans do that? There's nothing special about that. And so the disagreeable people, the harried people, the hurried people, take time to demonstrate some love to them like God has loved you. That's what the love of God looks like in every relationship you have with strangers. It's doing, if I can do good for you, I will do good for you. That doesn't mean enabling, doesn't mean approving, doesn't mean affirming. It just means if I know what you need and I can give it, I will. And if that's money, that's food, that's encouragement, that's my presence, that's my time, that's my patience. While you back in three or four times, whatever that is, I will give that to you. I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Next week, we're gonna talk about joy. So practice love this week and come back and you're gonna be real frazzled. And then we're gonna talk about how to be joyful while you do it. I'll see you guys next time.